A big welcome wherever you're listening to the Baltic Triangle podcast. Here we are, live from the Sistine Chapel. From me, Mick Ord. And me, Mark Reeson. This is the podcast where you hear from the people that really make Liverpool City region tick. The people behind the businesses and cultural organisations that contribute to Merseyside's unique character. And we've got a new sponsor, haven't we, Mick? Do you want to tell them all about it? Our sponsors for the next three months are the Baltic Creative CIC, which supports the digital and creative sector in the Baltic Triangle business area. Many thanks to Baltic Creative for becoming our sponsors, and over the next few episodes, we'll be featuring some of the most innovative and creative businesses based in the area, with some cracking stories to share. The real doers in the Liverpool City region, I can assure you. Great news, Mick, and a big, big thanks to them. So in this episode, number 37, I might add, we'll be hearing from the head brewer who's reviving one of Merseyside's best-loved beers. Yes, Kane's beers are making a comeback after a break of almost 10 years, and it's great to have them back. It's very important for us to be in this venue. It's got to be here, hasn't it? I think Kane's Booty Village is brilliant. I love it. I think it's exactly what Liverpool needs. The whole Baltic Triangle is, you know, it's extended the city in a way. And it's, it's given Liverpool something it has never had. The other cities in the country, they have these trendy areas, you know, London does, Manchester does, Birmingham does, that are like, you know, warehouses, even rave coffees, warehouse living and pop-up bars. And Liverpool never had it. And it's I think it's still growing. But once they open the new train station in a couple of years and things like that, We'll be well on our way, definitely. And I've been to Liverpool City Centre's only glassmaking studio, the Liverpool Bay Hot Shop, where glassblower extraordinaire John Fenn is reviving the ancient tradition of glassblowing, a disappearing craft that he's bringing back with a vengeance. It's the world's first. Nobody else has um, infused honey. And certainly no beekeepers have infused their f- honey into the glass before. It's all part of that idea of being creative and, and w- wishing to be creative and be inventive at the same time, you know, innovative. So the theme for this month's podcast, if there is one, I guess is reviving traditional crafts and skills. And I've been meeting the head brewer for Canes after a brewing gap of many years. So to give you a quick history lesson here, Robert Kane first brewed his famous owls back in 1858. The original company then merged with Walkers in 1921, and that company was then sold to Higson's, which lasted more than 60 years, and it was taken over by Bonnington's in 1990. So it changed hands a few times, and it was acquired by the Dusange brothers in 2002, when Kane's Brewing was revived and won many, many awards for its beers, and it seemed to be on the up. But unfortunately, in 2013, Keynes announced that it ceased brewing completely and the 38 staff there were made redundant. But now the beer is back, thanks to the Mikhail Hotels and Leisure Group. And I went down to meet Andy Hayes at the revamped brewery building. And it's fair to say that I was very impressed by the sympathetic way the refurbishment work has been handled. It is a very modern venue, but everywhere where we've taken something out, we've reused it somewhere else. So a lot of the building is the old... Um, you know, it's a listed building, so we couldn't change it too much. But, um, yeah, I think it's, it's really in keeping with, with the old times, but with a very modern touch. How does it feel for you as a brewer to be involved in an old brand like this, like Cane's? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a massive beer fan, like, and especially Real Ale. I'm from the Lake District, you know. We, grew up, we didn't grow up drinking lager up there. We drink, grew up drinking Real Ale. And then, yeah, so I like the modern stuff, but I always wanted to to be a brewer in somewhere that was doing it traditional, maybe with a bit of modern twist in the future. But I like the fact that, you know, we're doing something that Liverpool hasn't really got anymore and doing it in the original way that Cairns did it. 
Talk to me a bit about the beers that you're brewing at the moment then. So it's early days for you. You've only just really been established again as a, as a brand. What beers do you have on offer at the minute? Uh, we don't. I mean, so we've actually, it's funny, we've got, um, we did our first bitter brew, started it on the second, that was when we started it, and it's in casks. So at some point after this, we're going to go downstairs and I'm going to put a tap in it. We're going to bring it through the bar and we're all going to have a try of it, if you stick around. You try and stop me. Um, so absolutely, and, and, and so consequently, then this is this is quite a pivotal moment for the brewery, then, isn't it? To be to be brewing again. How long has it been? Two thousand and thirteen. You can still buy it in the shops. So nine years. Is there a weight of responsibility that comes with brewing this beer again in Liverpool? I mean, it is. I think we brought down ourselves. You know, rather than do everything brand new, we've we've got the name, we've got the methods, we've got the recipes, and we've told everybody we're going to do it as traditional as possible, which I love, and yeah, but definitely a responsibility. And today, we'll try it, and uh, we've all said if it's, if it's not good enough, it won't go out. Keynes is synonymous with Liverpool. How much do you know about the original brewery and, and the journey that it, it had before it shut down? Probably as much as anybody now. I mean, what I didn't know, I've obviously learned. You know, all our all the rooms in our thing, they're all named after something to Robert Kane. So, um, yeah, I've had to learn it, really. And I'm gonna, we're going to do brewery tours, and we're going to do it around the old, the old site, not just their new brewery. So even if it's somebody else that'll do them, I'll be the one teaching them. So yeah, I know pretty much everything. And what is it about the original kind of concept behind what you wanted to do that you've tried to keep in most of all? We've incorporated the whole brew. We've got a, we've got a, a wall upstairs that's all the old directors and some of the old merchandise. We want people to remember Canes, but come into a, a modern venue to do it. I mean, you've got three floors to fill here. I mean, obviously, there'll be lots of different offerings as well. No doubt you'll have food, you'll have function suites. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Apart from our own beers, we've got a brilliant selection of, of draft beers. Um, we've got a, a hop tail bar, so hops-infused cocktails, and a craft beer bar, which will be cans from some of our favourite brewers. A live music stand on the main floor, and then downstairs we're going to turn into our own little basement. Jam sessions, open mic nights, things like that. Um, Six private function suites that you can use in total. You can rent the whole venue if you want. We've got two big outdoor spaces. So, yeah, something for everyone. You've also got the brewery tap, I'm going to call it, which is up there. It used to be called the grapes or something. So when I came on board as project manager, I think the, the brewery tap had been closed for about six months. And my first question was, why is this closed? Let's get it open. If anything, it's my favourite venue in the world. I love it. I think it's beautiful. I think, you know, it's... There's such a story behind every bit of furniture in there. They wrote, like, the, the, the back bar was made out of the, the horse boxes from the stables where over the road, everything. And since I've been in there, I've had the family that owned it in the 60s, the family that owned it in the 70s, and the family that owned it in the 80s come back, stop by to say hello. They're all just waiting for it to reopen. So I think putting, putting Kane's beers back on in there, and we also own Dr. Duncan's in the city, city centre, and again, putting Kane's beers back on in there, in a way more important than getting the beers back on in a new venue because that's where they should be. Let's just go backwards a little bit then. Let's talk about your brewing heritage personally then. Let's think about how you got involved in brewing. And, and obviously brewing's been something that's just been massive over the last few years. Let's talk a bit about your journey into brewing. Working in Battersea in London, I was running one of Camera's best, biggest real ale pubs in the country. And one of their head brewers from a local brewery was, was our regular customer. And I told him I wanted to do it. And he said, come down on your days off. And yeah, that's how I learned it. One thing that I always think about whenever I think about Canes is it's Liverpool in a pint thing. Is it something you still use? We're bringing back Liverpool in a pint, and it is, definitely. One other thing that I think is also synonymous with Canes was their raisin beer. Have you got any plans to bring back raisin beer? Yeah, I mean, we have, definitely. Um, I think there's a lot of different memories of it. I think, to me, it was, it was 
it was the original craft beer. There was nothing like that around at the time, was there? People might not realise it. It was just a traditional ale that was fruit-infused. And I think a very weird fruit in raisins. Very sweet. Very rich. Mate, it's one of the beers you probably couldn't drink too much of. But yeah, I mean, we're definitely bringing it back. I think we're probably going to do our first brew of it next week. One thing that I think has probably gone under the radar for a lot of people is the amount of jobs you've probably created here. Give me some sense of how many jobs you've created in the local economy. In the brewery alone, maybe talking 35. I mean, obviously, all the building work's been done by local firms, you know, local electricians, so it's obviously a lot more than that. I mean, the Mikhail Group as a total that I work for, just in this area, we've got four venues. So you may be talking 60, 70 members of staff. How important is it for you to be in the Baltic? It's very important for us to be in this venue. It's got to be here, hasn't it? I think Cain's Brewery Village is brilliant. I love it. I think it's exactly what Liverpool needs. The whole Baltic Triangle is, you know, it's extended the city in a way. And it's given Liverpool something that has never had. The other cities in the country, they have these trendy areas, you know, London does, Manchester does, Birmingham does, that are like, you know, warehouses, even rave, coffees, warehouse living, and pop-up bars and Liverpool never had it and it's I think it's still growing but once they open the new train station in a couple of years and things like that we'll be well on our way definitely. I mean this area has certainly grown over the last two three years it's got massive isn't it there's hundreds and hundreds of people coming down here all the, all the time so I think the very fact that you've got such a substantial venue in here is is, is incredibly exciting I think. The new brood is completely different to anything else that's on this site. It's got a different feel about it, this one. It's got a real kind of like authentic, old-fashioned feel to it. Do you agree? If anything, it exceeded expectations from, even from the, the, the night before we opened to me seeing it in the morning. I couldn't believe how beautiful it was and I couldn't believe how well it had been done. You know, it's like the visions I had in my head weren't even a, a tenth of how good it turned out. You know, I was absolutely amazed by each room's got a completely different design. And we've done that deliberately, you know, the room, I mean, the room we're sitting in now, you'll agree, for a private function suite and your own little bar is absolutely brilliant. The one next door is completely different. It's got, a, you know, a, a table in the middle for like corporate events, you know, things like that. And then you see the trendy cocktail bar upstairs and the basement, completely different every floor and I absolutely love it. Give me a summary of what we've got going on here on site with regards to the brewing then. It's a very small brew site, if you've seen. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's very well planned as it has to be. So it's a bit backwards. So in the back, we've got, our, where the final room would be. So we've got our bright tanks where you'd store the beer before they go into casks. But also in there, we've got our grist case, which is the very start of the brewing process. So the milk we buy in, which um, comes from Fawcett's Milk Millin in Castleford, um, it gets measured out. You know, we've probably got three different malts that go into every brew. It gets put into the grist case uh, and then we've got a very long auger pipe, which motors it through and into what we call the mash tun, where it'll get mixed with water. Um, stays in there for a couple of hours and then it gets obviously drained out through the malt and from then onwards it's filtration it's boiling it's cooling it's fermenting until it goes back into the casks so it starts off in one end goes back and then ends up back on the other side so the whole process is done here on site and it comes straight out of there and goes straight into the into the kegs and barrels does it we've got a 10 hectolitre brew length which is six brewers barrels we call it and it's about 20 kegs or 20 casks. And we'll do that four days a week. That's really interesting. So from a point of view of actual uh, demand, it's going to be quite an exclusive beer, isn't it, Andy? It is definitely, yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd love to do some keg swaps with people. I'd love to do some collaborations with people. So if anybody's listening, hit me up. But um, it'll be brewers that I like, you know, some, some nice collaboration beers. Um, you know, we've had people asking for it straight away. They want to buy it. And, you know, that might be something we do in the future when we can create more.
Can you tell me a little bit about what else we can expect to see here, like tasting sessions, brewery tours, that kind of stuff? With the beer-wise, we're sticking to our core range, so we can win and we'll do some in the future. So we've pretty much got them all on the, on the go. We'll dip the raisin beer. Um, once they're all on the go, we will do tasting sessions. There was a plan to do one big one, but it won't really work out like that. But especially when the lager starts, be, we'll launch it somehow. Um, I think the brewery, brewery tours will probably start next week. So... We've got an external tour guy coming in, but I'll be doing some of them myself, obviously. They'll include a tasting session, so a paddle of beers where you can have your own, and then you can even stay stay for a pie, pie and a pint. We're going to um, hopefully do some steak and canes pies, so and then you can stay for a pie and a pint. Obviously, the live music, we're going to do the basement, the um, open mic nights, things like that. That'll probably start next week. We've talked about art installations, all kinds of things, so um, we'll have a gift shop, and that'll have some of the old stuff in as well. We've found some amazing old ashtrays and old trays from the original canes and stuff like that, so be out be able to buy a bit of history excellent stuff it sounds amazing um and it's all right here no doubt you've been sort of opening cupboards and looking in loft spaces and found all kinds of stuff have you i i've gone for walks and got lost i have honestly we found a a plastic model you know like they make a plastic model of a new building and it's from when the brewery changed in the early 90s and it's got you know it's got the uh, the old stables on that became the um, the office building it's got the original site the whole site where where you'd see Peaky Blinders and those bars now, it, it labels them what they are. You've also got in this room in the corner, you've got one of the original signing in guest books, haven't you? Uh, it's not actually a guest book, so it's, it's actually from the brewery tab. What it actually is, it's a tab book. So if you look at it, it's um, it's and it'll have the same repeat names through it. It's a, it's a family name, it's where they live in Liverpool, it's what they've bought, how much it cost, and then when they've paid for it, it's got that, a line through it, and it's from 1879 to 1882. And it's in brilliant condition. And the writing's even so good you can't read it because it's like proper doctor's script that you wouldn't have right now. So, I mean, you've got a, a, that's a real kind of like a treasure chest then of Liverpool history as well, all, all wrapped up in one, isn't it? How can people keep in touch with what's going on there? Where, where, where should we look to, to keep an eye on what's happening here? I mean, you can follow us on our socials. I think Instagrams are probably the best. Just look for Kane's Brewery. Um, the web, we've got a website and it, that's really good if you want to book private functions, keep up to date, you know, see what beers are brewing. And that's just canesbrewery.co.uk. Well, we are going to disappear downstairs any second now just to uh, have a little look and see if we can maybe take a little tipple of the beer as it's uh, almost ready. Um, before we do that, I just want to say thank you very much indeed for uh, getting, getting us in here today. And I, I want to wish you nothing but success for the future. Absolutely no problem. Thank you very much. Andy's been down in the basement, connected it all up, and now we're going to pull a first pint off of it. My name's David Smith, and I'm uh, from Brewing Services, and we've been uh, here helping these lads set the, the brewery up for the last uh, eight months. This is the culmination of all our hard work. What's your feeling? Well, I think it's got a, a very good multi-character, which is what we were expecting from the recipe. This is uh, what we think the Cane's traditional beer would have tasted like. So we've used the same uh, combination of hops, the same uh, malt recipe, obviously scaled down to suit our size of brewery. But we've tried to keep it proportionally to uh, the, the same sort of ingredients and the same amounts. And we've got the same yeast, of course, had it grown up for us specially. So it is the original cane strain of yeast that was used in, in, in their squares. So hopefully we've got somewhere close. Andy, what do you think? How's it looking? Yeah, it's tasty. It's got all the right flavours. Very happy with it. So there you go. It's looking good. Talk to me about what else we've got on offer here. So at the moment in the fermentation tanks, we've got another one of these tradbitters. We've got a couple of lagers, the same lager 
a double brew, which we'll be doing a lot of. And then we've got the FA, the Formidable Ale. Probably Kane's most successful beer of the modern era and the one that people rated the highest. Um, it's a very, very deceptively pale 5% hoppy amber ale and it looks brilliant so far. So hopefully that'll be on next week. Right, so get yourselves down here, watch your space and uh, come down and try some of these beers out. They're amazing. Andy Hayes, the head brewer at Cane's from the Mikhail Hotels and Leisure Group. Great news that, Mark. Cane's was really popular on Merseyside for, for a couple of years, wasn't it? With so many beer drinkers loving it. And then they hit financial problems and that seemed to be it. Yeah, I mean, the good thing for me is that it, it, it's been done in a really authentic way. It fits so well in the Canesbury village. I mean, how can it be the Canesbury village without Canesbury in it now? And you go in there, the bars themselves look fantastic. It's all really, really nicely done out. And you can see the beers being brewed behind the bar itself through the glass wall. It's amazing. It looks amazing. Yeah, yeah. And they are kind of reviving some of the pubs that they owned as well, aren't they? So Dr. Duncan's and Punch Tarmies, I think, and, and probably quite a few others, I think. So Andy took me on a lovely little tour of the actual building itself, and then I went into Punch Tarmies afterwards. There's so much in there, Mick. The walls are festooned with original, authentic pictures, portraits, bits and pieces. There's little bric-a-brac everywhere that reminds you of the heritage that it's got in the city. But what I also like about it, Mick, is it's going to be fairly exclusive because it's not brewed in such quantities that you're going to find it in supermarkets, etc. Yeah, yeah. And my favourite bit of Punch Tarmies is the well. You can still see the stream at the bottom of the well. There can't be many places where you can uh, experience that. It's been a pretty boozy couple of weeks for me, to be fair. I went to the, uh, the Craft Beer Expo 22 at the Black Lodge Brewery, and that was an amazing experience. There's some excellent beers there. And it's great to see just how many beers there are being brewed on Merseyside at the moment too, Mick. You should get yourself down. Uh, yeah, I will. Well, I've, I've discovered one, um, a little brewery near where I live in Frodsham called Chapter Beers. Wow. Only discovered them the other week. Um, so it's, it is good because for years we only had canes, didn't we? And then when that went the way of all flesh, luckily the craft beers started coming in. So, you know, good stuff. Big time shout out there to uh, Noah, who's the, uh, who's the founder of Chapter and uh, a really, really excellent brewery. They are indeed. So Mick, what have you been doing? You went to see the Stones, I believe, did you? Uh, wow. To be, to be dead honest, uh, Mark, I wasn't really expecting that much because... Let's face it, they're 80 or nearer, but my word, um, they were awesome. When Mick Jagger, Ronnie Wood and Keith Richard came out, wow, they blitzed the place. It was like watching Fontaine's DC. They were really, really good. Loads of energy, loads of power. The crowd went mad. Um, they knew most of the songs. They were just really, really good and dead energetic. So impressive, so impressive. Nearly as impressive as seeing you go to Anfield, Mick. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> at, at the end of the set, the crowd started singing You'll Never Walk Alone, and then the Stones came back out for the encore, and they loved it. So for that one occasion, although I wasn't singing it, my heart was in it, even though my mouth wasn't. I'll leave it at that. So, Mick, talk to me a little bit about your glass-blowing experience that you've had. <laughs> well, another great tradition being revived in the Baltic is, as you say, glass-blowing, a craft which started to die out in the 80s after many, many hundreds of years. Nowadays, the only places where you're likely to see traditional glass-blowing are glass-making studios, 
Whereas in the old days, there were many companies employing them to make glass furniture and objects and all that kind of thing, particularly in parts of the Midlands and Yorkshire. John Fenn's company, the Liverpool Bay Hot Shop, is based in Northern Lights in the Canes Brewery Village. It's the only such studio in the city centre. John has a fascinating personal tale to tell about his craft and the way in which his creativity has found a new lease of life after an illness-enforced gap of 35 years when John got lead poisoning as a young man and that incapacitated him, forcing him into a career change when he became a welfare advisor. Anyway, John takes up his story. After the poisoning, when I left my work as a glass maker, it took me four years to basically to be able to walk in a straight line. That's how badly, you know, I, I was affected by it. It affected my balance. It just affects everything. And, and I've still got some of the effects of it as well. After oh. 40 years nearly, you know, it's like with life. You just have to get on with it, don't you? And, uh... So why did you come back to it? What was the turning point? The, the turning point was reaching the age of 60. And two things happened. I had a birthday party and I turned it into a charity fundraising bash to help Liverpool's White Centre, uh, Whitechapel Centre out. And I was talking with a friend, as you do, over a, a pint, an ex-colleague of mine who we used to work with in the CAB, and he said something like, oh, um, you've worked tirelessly for 30-odd years helping other people with their problems and everything. When are you going to do something that you want to do? And what's it going to be? And I just, the word glass blowing, I just blurted out the word glass blowing. I don't know where it came from. It just disappeared. <laughs> he was shocked. I was shocked, you know. But um, it just came out. And then shortly after that, there was a, a television series. Are we allowed to mention it by name? Yeah, Netflix has blown away. And I was, I wouldn't say, I had my hand, my arm twisted behind my back to actually watch it because um, I, I'd given up any hope, really, of... Uh, ever getting back into glass blowing. And um, so I reluctantly agreed to watch an episode of Blown Away. And um, there was a guy on there, one of the contestants, who I, I actually met. Um, he was one of the first year students when I worked at art college back in Surrey. And um, so I recognized him instantly. I hadn't changed all that much. And um, um, I watched five episodes that night of this uh, blown away contest and five episodes the next night and I was so much into it by the end of that, uh, within half an hour of the series, you know, watching the final series, uh, programming it, I'd gone and booked myself on a glass blowing course. I just couldn't not do that, I, I was just compelled to do that and um, yeah, the glass blowing course was uh, in Wiltshire. It was quite a long way to travel for it. At a place called the Glass Hub, and I had a great tutor, uh, a person called Katie Young, and um, and Katie was a bit sceptical because I'd gone and booked myself on this intermediary glass blowing course, as in you're supposed to have gone and done the beginners course first, like. And she was a bit concerned about it, I must admit. But we went down there. The morning was just gathering out of the furnace and making little birds out of the glass and what have you. But when it comes to doing the uh, glass blowing for real, I, there's a technique in glass blowing for creating the bubble, the first bubble in the glass, and it's called thumbing out. And I just automatically just thumbed out this piece of glass. While she was saying, that took me three weeks to learn, you know? And I just knew when it worked that, you know, it, those skills are still there. 
after a gap of 35 years. Yeah, yeah. And I'm your skills were still there. Your skills were still there. Okay, they were a bit rustier, but um, but they were still there. And I made five pieces of glass, and at the end of the three days, I, I was actually burnishing gold leaf onto the outside of the glass and um, making things that you could use, you know, mainly whiskey glasses, actually. But, uh, we're sitting here in your studio, here in the Baltic, in Northern Lights, and people can probably hear the furnace burning away in the... And you've got a table in front of you with some of your your creations, really. Ooh. Just want to talk us through some of them, because obviously we can't see them. They're very, very colourful, lots of shapes and sizes. Just talk us through some of them, will you? Yeah, a lot, a lot of the work I do is experimental, and um, I like to play about with glass, basically. Uh, much to my detriment, because I should get on and do things, you know, properly as they should be done. But no, I like to experiment. And I'm a beekeeper as well. So when I was beekeeping, I noticed there was like some similarities to, to glass blowing from the movements of the beekeeper that you've got to make and keep the movements flowing and, and from the natural, you know, flowing movements of the honey and the molten glass. There's just so many similarities. And I had this little bit of honey left over that I fermented, so I couldn't really use it for much. And uh, I didn't want to waste it, so I took it in to work with me. And I started um, seeing, I set about to see whether or not you could actually infuse the honey into the glass. And, well, yes, you can. Found that out. And um, it started um, a chain of events then, really. Because uh, I'm a beekeeper, I'm into the conservation side of it as well, and also, I've employed a bit of a technology into the studios as well to try and, you know, reduce our impact on the environment. Um, the glass furnace, I just switch it off when it's not needed. It runs on the same, the furnace actually runs on the same amount of gas pressure as domestic cooker. So it uses very little energy, really, for um, melting glass. Uh, and so the, the whole thing of conservation, you know, is, is really what is driving behind it. My bees aren't any old, um, you know, commercial variety. They happen to be native Welsh black bees. They, they were endangered, probably less so now because the beekeepers are getting interested in, you know, keeping them. Um, but they're the original bees, you know, that had inhabited the landscape for millions of years. And they make very small amounts of honey as well. They're very careful with how much they use and keep an eye on the uh, what's going off there and the bees as well. But it's all about, you know, trying to trying to keep the environment going, trying to keep humankind going as well, you know, because once the bees are gone, you know, that's that's it. Once the pollinators are dead, then you know, chances are we might die out as well. And um, so the idea is just trying to be kind to the environment, as kind as it can. And um, so explain how you use the bees in your in your method of glass blowing, because yeah. it's the first time, as far as you know, in the world. I mean, you've you've invented a new technology, well, isn't it? First. Yeah, it's the world's first. Nobody else has um, infused honey. And certainly no beekeepers have infused their honey into the glass before. It's all part of that idea of being creative and, and wishing to be creative and, and be inventive at the same time, you know, innovative. And um, So you're yeah. holding a vase in front of you now. Um, yeah. What would you call it? Dark dark pink? Is it, yeah, so is it that, red? That, that is actually gold ruby. Okay. And the, the, the colour derives from 
gold oxide being used in the manufacturer's glass. The whole idea of this really was to try and cut down on using colour because it's expensive. It's made in Germany and we have to export it in here because, of course, we can't make anything like it here, can we? And, um, <laughs> you know, that'd be too easy if we could. And so the idea was to try and cut down on the use of, of colour. But um, it also works well with colour. So that's a little bit of a dilemma that I'm, I'm sort of wrestling with that one. But, um, but yeah, and the idea was to, to use a natural substance to try and reduce you know, that impact. So I sold one of these. It's also helping to keep, you know, native Welsh black bees alive as well. So the yeah. bubbles in that glass are are the moulds from the honey that was infused in the glass. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's quite a complicated process. I've, I've got a, I've got a Victorian mould uh, and it's ripped. Yep, so I, I start off by taking a piece of colour gathering some molten glass over that and blowing it into this tiny ribbed mould and then I dip it into the honey it's as simple as that, I just plonk it into the honey right. it sort of like produces smoke everywhere in it, uh, erupts into a fireball on the end of the uh, blowing iron and then I gather glass over that the honey instantly evaporates off you know, because I'm, I'm adding a material that's probably at a thousand degrees celsius to uh, to honey. So the honey evaporates off and it leaves this trace. And this trace emerges in the forms of bubbles in the glass. And that's what we've got. Uh, so there's no honey inside there, that's evaporating gone. But what we've got is the, uh, the residue of that you know, in terms of solids that remain there and then expand further into gas, gas again. And um, well, you need to start making honey jars, don't you, of this? Well, you know, I'm moving in the right direction, I think. These are, um, the, the latest pieces of work I'm doing are the hexagonal, so it, it ties in with the shape of the, um, the honeycomb. Oh, cool. Yeah, from the hive. No, it's, um, it, it's fun, it's hard work, and it's um, hot and it's sweaty and everything, but it purpose to it as well, and that's to, to really try and push things as far as they will go. I mean, I've been I've been infusing my glass, uh, my honey into the glass now for the last twelve months, and um, I just want to see how far I can take this. Obviously, lockdown was very very difficult for you, as it was for so mm. many people. Since lockdown's finished, you've had exhibitions in Seattle, in Cardiff. Yeah, I've been part of exhibitions. Yeah, there's one called um, Refract, which is an annual glassmaking festival in Seattle, the, the glassmaking capital of the universe. You know, um, <laughs> it is, and. Um, yeah, there's, um, I mean, this is the only glass blowing studio within the central Liverpool. And in Seattle, they've got over 100 glass blowing studios. Yeah, it's, it's just amazing place. I was one of 10, 10 artists whose work was selected for this exhibition in Seattle. That must well, have delighted you after the, after the difficulties of lockdown. Well, it, it, I was stunned. I was shocked, I must admit. But, because um, we are, we are, I only opened the doors of the place to the public on the 21st of May. And that was during a festival, Nightlife. That was last year? That was last year, yeah. And by October, like my, my work is showing an exhibition in uh, in Seattle. You know, how, how crazy is that, you know? But, and I was actually supposed to go to Seattle. This is the ironic thing about it. I was supposed to go to Seattle and spend a day in the workshop of one of my glass-blowing friends, Yanush Pozniak. 
who's one of the contestants in Netflix, is blown away. Yeah, my, my glass ended up there before me, you know, it's... Um, Fantastic. And um, yeah. people can come to your studios and see you work yeah. And, yeah. and hopefully buy it as well. What kind of range yeah. of, of uh, work do you, have yeah, you produced I do, here? And I do small items, you know, which I, I feel are reasonably priced. You know, and I, I like the idea that everybody should be able to own, you know, a piece of glass art. In price range, from £20, £30, up to a little bit more than that, maybe. But And you said that this is... Um, an industry really that has seen many many changes over the past sort of couple of years but yeah. a it's great that you've kind of revived it and you rediscovered your childhood love really mm. and b you're also taking on an apprentice who's who's busy working here in the studio now but just tell us a little bit about yeah Saskia. Um, it, it is it's, it's very much a, a dying art as well but it's also over the last half century it's, it's had a bit of a revival as well in the form of studio glass and Saskia um, got in touch she, she'd actually come in here to have a bike repaired in the bike repair shop right. that's connected with the cafe and uh, noticed that there was glass blowing studio she'd always wanted to do glass blowing it was a bit of a career change for her and uh, you know, Saskia's job was affected during lockdown as well because she was into uh, theatre set design having studied at Lippa. So she got in touch and said, I'd like to do gospel. Can I be an assist? So we arranged an interview. It was pretty obvious from that interview that, yeah, she was very keen to do gospel and she wanted to actually develop that and make a career out of it. And I needed an assistant. I worked very well. Traditionally, it was a very male-dominated um, industry. The ratio now has sort of re reversed. In, in, in art colleges, it's about 78% female to 22% male so that's a, that's a major change you know yeah women can make glass just as well as men can you know and so, some might even argue even better but um, do you want to call her over then? Saskia how long have you been with John here at the studio um since what last October but it's like once a week but you're a theatre set designer by profession aren't you what what was it that was attractive to you about glass blowing, which in many ways, as John has explained, is a bit of a dying craft, or was. I don't know. That's I, that's gonna, my honest answer. I have no idea. I've always seen it in in programs, and I've seen demonstrations in other universities, like in London, and I've always been attracted to it. I've never had the chance to do it because of financial things or timing. And I found John completely by fluke. So just thought, why not try and start doing it? How are you finding it? Good. It's really hard. It's really intense. But the highs are really high, but the lows are really low. So I think that's the <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's really, really good, really hard, but I'm really enjoying it. And long term ambition wise, if I came back to you in five or ten years' time, sitting here now in the studio, where would you like to be then? Um, I, I guess ideally my own studio, or yeah, yeah, own studio, doing own stuff and getting other people to come in and do what giving giving uh, giving other people the opportunity John has given me. That must be great to hear. It is. It is because that 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 is. 
you know, the history of glass blowing, you know, is just skills being handed down. And that's the way that it kept going, that you keep it going. You know, we, it's sort of like a chain. You can imagine this long 2,000 euro chain, you know? Um, people are glass blowers. I feel that I'm a link in that chain, you know? And the idea is to try and keep it going as, uh, as long as possible. It just so happens I, I incorporate two ancient crafts, one of beekeeping as well as glass blowing, but um, yeah, it's great. And I will say about Saskia, right? Saskia is left-handed and glass blowing is geared up for right-handed people. So, you know, she's doing amazingly well, really, considering that she's having to blow the glass right-handedly. And uh, I learned that as well, you know, and become ambidextrous. It's, um, yeah, no easy feat. And it looks easy. Glass blowing looks really easy if you, you watch it on, you know, YouTube or whatever, but or television. And but it's not. It's quite difficult. And part of the thing here is that I run glass blowing courses as well, so people can come down and experience glass blowing, and, and they can make their own pieces of glass to take away with them when it's cooled down. Yeah. John Finn there. Mick, uh, what an amazing story and. It sounds to me like he's really, really passionate about what he does. And, and, and that bizarre little link with the bees, how did that come about? Yeah, brilliant. Well, he's a, he's a truly creative guy. It's great the stuff that he's doing with the bees. It's, it's a world first. And he's taking on an apprentice as well, we heard from Saskia. So, I mean, it, 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 it's great to see. And um, he's going to be on the telly later this year. And I can't say anything about it. Uh, because there's an NDA being signed. But he is going to be on the telly a bit later this year. And when he is, we'll give everybody a forewarning. Incredible story too, really. I mean, he's obviously had some setbacks in his own personal life. So uh, for him to turn it round and to rekindle that love, no pun intended, um, what an amazing guy. Yeah, yeah. As I mentioned at the top of the podcast, uh, we're now sponsored by Baltic Creative CIC. And actually, they're looking for a very important role to be filled. They're looking for a head of property and development at Baltic Creative CIC now that Mark Lawler's left. They're looking for an ambitious individual who will lead the dedicated Liverpool-based team to set and execute the growth strategy and supercharge this accelerating business. Interested? Then what you need to do if you're interested in becoming the Head of Property and Development at Baltic Creative CIC, log on to the Kingsley Recruitment website. And we'll also put a link in our episode notes as well. That's an exciting development there, Mick. So uh, good luck to anybody that goes for that role. And it's an incredibly important role in this area. So get your applications in early. Mick, that's just about it from us for this month. Um, the sun's been shining recently. Let's hope the sun continues to shine. And uh, if anyone has got any suggestions at all for any future forthcoming episodes, then please don't hesitate to get in touch with us. And the email address is info at baltictrianglepodcast.com. That's info at baltictrianglepodcast.com. And once again, thank you to Baltic Creative CIC for sponsoring us. We appreciate it. We really do. So all the very best from us here. And uh, we'll look forward to speaking to you again very, very soon. Bye for now.